A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. What do you all want for the holidays? What is the gift you want most? Effective virus therapeutics? Like what you actually want. Materialism. Give me something material and passing, but nonetheless extremely important to you. There's some. There's, I have like a. I have like a, a basement dungeon gym, and I have like a squat rack in there, and and a deadlift platform. But there's some other stuff I want. There's like a. It's like a plate loaded lat pull down machine that'd be pretty cool. A Peloton. I take a Peloton. I I think I think it's key to do weights and and cardio. You got to get that cross training thing in. Do you find not being around other people when you work out makes you grunt louder? I do feel like that would be a direction I would dangerously trend in, where it's like no one can hear me scream. The problem is that. The th- there's a vent connecting the gym part of my basement directly to my wife's office, so <laughs> she she has to hear me like failing all my squats, and making these awful sounds. Does the smell of your home gym waft up through the vent too? Because that's like that seems like a rough working condition. It's probably not even OSHA safe. I keep it quite clean though. I you know I I, I tidy. Michelle has very kindly uh, rescued my gym clothes recently, and they're currently stinking up his house. And I deeply apologize for that. Well, I have not opened that plastic bag. That plastic bag. Please do not. (laughs) These are my pre-pandemic gym clothes. Oh, no. That sounds like a biohazard. Why do you have Scott's gym clothes? Because I left them at the Columbia University gym pre-pandemic and have not had the opportunity to return (laughs) since then. Oh, God. So it's been like two years of that without being washed. Oh, dear. That's not good. Do you think they've grown things? Michelle, we're going to need you to burn that, please. And then take a video for the feed, for the RATSEC feed. That's going to be a Patreon exclusive. Watch someone burn Scott's dirty gym clothes. Oh, but the shorts are Lululemon. (laughs) It's so nice. It's so expensive. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, the eve of reason. Because we are here at the eve of a holiday that many people celebrate, but not everybody. But let's be honest, it's kind of a big deal. It's a holiday, a day off of work for most people. And we are here trying to soak up that last bit of discussion about national security news while we can before we go on a long leave. I am, of course, here with my co-host, Alan. Hello. And Quinta. Hello. And we are continuing our trend of sultry voiced outside guests with our guest today, lawfare contributor, military lawyer extraordinaire at Columbia Law School lecturer, among many other hats, Michelle Paradis. Michelle, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. And a Merry Christmas. Oh, my God. That's my new ringtone. It's amazing. I will say, Michelle, I think I've told him this story before, but I uh, will embarrass him by saying this. I had the pleasure of seeing him do oral arguments before I even got to know him uh, years ago now when I was a law clerk. And the first thing I noticed when I was like, he's a very good lawyer, but more importantly, he's got the most amazing voice I think I've ever heard in my entire life. How do you rule against that voice? How do you rule against that voice? You hear uh, the whole panel. I think it was the en banc course. I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be, that's a real edge right there. Uh, so I'm happy to get to share it with you, Rational Security audience. I got, well, thank you very much. I think had I had I had it not been a pure Curiam opinion against us, I would have uh, given you a bit of credit uh, for that observation. So, you know, I know it says it's like it's the it's the game changer, but you know it makes a difference. It weighs in certainly. Just imagine what the opinion would have been if you hadn't had the. Voice. I know it would, have been, exactly. it, would have been, it would have been devastating. It would have been devastating. Well, we're very happy to have you here for the party at Nakatomi Plaza edition. Because it's the eve of a major holiday, we are all here to celebrate in true 80s fashion, and absolutely nothing unexpected could go wrong. Certainly nothing related to a global pandemic or an invasion of Ukraine. No siree, Bob. The last few years has been a big news day towards the end of the year, so we may yet have some big developments coming. But even before we get there, just last week, we've had a couple of big news come out in the national security arena we are going to talk over today. Topic one, you want the boost? You can't handle the boost. That was terrible. <laughs> that was uh, some I wanted combination to... of like it's... Arnold Schwarzenegger and like something vaguely Italian. I, I, you know, it was a stage play first. We don't know who played the stage <laughs> role. 
before Nicholson got there. It could have been Arnold. You know, he was up and comer at the time. <laughs> Regardless, the key point here is that several state governors are refusing to direct their National Guards to comply with the Defense Department's vaccination mandate. Can the federal government make them comply? Topic two, if Optimus Prime is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> Last week, a UN body debated whether to pursue a treaty banning the development and use of automated war machines. Is there a merit to this proposal or good reason to be skeptical? And topic three, I'm rubber, you're sued. Donald Trump and his associates are using the courts to strike back against both the January 6th committee and New York state officials seeking to investigate them. Are there merits to their arguments or is something else afoot? Alan, let me hand it over to you to introduce our first topic. So the Defense Department has mandated that all uh, active duty members of the military get vaccinated uh, and that if you don't get vaccinated, you will no longer be in the military. Uh, and although there have been some holdouts, the overwhelming majority of folks in the military, I think it's more than 98% for the Army, Navy, and Air Force, uh, have gotten vaccinated. Um, but an interesting issue has arisen with respect to the vaccine mandate as it applies to state national guards. In most state national guards, vaccination is happening uh, without incident. Uh, but several states, as Scott mentioned, have expressed varying levels of reluctance and resistance to this. So Oklahoma and Texas in particular have been fighting quite hard, refusing to enforce. It's, well, it's, it's an interesting question of what they're exactly refusing to do. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but they're very much against the vaccine mandates. And uh, recently, five other states, Iowa, Wyoming, Nebraska, Mississippi, and Alaska, sent a letter to DOD asking it to remove this mandate for the National Guard, arguing, among other things, that the military lacks the authority as a matter of federalism. So, Michelle, you wrote a lawfare piece about this earlier this month. So I'm going to start with you. But before we get into the question of vaccine mandates for the National Guard specifically, I was hoping you could just set the stage a little bit and, and explain what the National Guard actually is. I have to say, uh, I have this very hazy understanding of what it is. And I think lots of people have a similarly hazy understanding. So what is it? Why does it exist? And what is its relationship to the to the national government. So in particular, one thing that leapt out to me is that uh, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, he wrote a letter to the Pentagon in which he resisted the vaccine mandate. And he said that he is the, quote, commander in chief of the state's militia. Unpack that for us. Is, 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 is any of that true? And if so, how much? So, so that is true but it may not be as impressive as he, he wants it to sound. So the, the National Guard is what we now call the militia. Uh, the militia going back to the American Revolution, all of the sort of, you know, great sort of George Washington crossing the Delaware, bringing the militia together to, to fight Lexington and Concord. It's the citizen soldiers who live by farmers or craftsmen during the day, uh, maintain a rifle, a working musket at home, and are ready to fight upon the drop of a hat uh, if the nation calls upon them to serve. So the militia is this ancient institution that goes back prior to the United States' even founding, uh, back to the English, with the idea of the local citizen soldier. And so the idea that there'd be a federalism concern with the militia is not entirely irrational. It's understood as being this kind of local military. Uh, the Second Amendment is, in essence, a, a reification of the idea of the militia and the responsibility of individual citizens to uh, protect their homes, protect their states, protect their communities. But what the governors, I think, kind of misunderstand, so the governors resisting the vaccine mandates, is that Congress has given the authority under what are called the militia clauses in the Constitution to actually regulate the militia. And this was probably one of the most controversial parts of the Constitution, its ratification, an inordinate amount of the debates around ratification across the states are spent over the federal government's essentially seizure of control over the militia. Um, the Federalist Papers cover the militia at various times in order to defend the powers of the federal government. So, so what this sort of current controversy is all about is this traditional anxiety the states have over whether or not their militia can be controlled and told what to do by the federal government. And unfortunately for the governors of these various states, federal law, certainly for the past hundred years, has given Congress and by delegation, the secretary, now the secretary of defense and the secretaries of the army and the air force, an incredible amount of power and discretion to regulate the militia, what we now call the national guard, uh, to set the standards for their training, to require them to meet the same kind of fitness standards that ordinary armed forces meet. Uh, and that includes things like vaccines mandates. 
and there are basically two tracks. I can get a little geeky on this, but rational security listeners, I'm sure don't mind geeking out a little bit. There are actually two tracks in which the federal government can act with respect to the militia. One is through the Title 10 track, the ordinary military track, uh, because basically in the 1930s, Congress established a reserve corps called the National Guard of the United States, which is like the Army Reserve, like the Navy Reserve, Air Force Reserve. And everyone who is in the state's National Guard is simultaneously a member of the Federal Reserve Force uh, called the National Guard of the United States or Air National Guard of the United States. Simultaneously, they're members of their state National Guard, which is sometimes called their Title 32 capacity. Title 32 being the, the provision of the U.S. Code dedicated to regulating the militia. And in that role, they operate at the direction under the commander-in-chief power, such as they are, of the governor of their respective states. And that's most of what they probably do on a daily basis. That's everything from uh, responding to hurricanes and floods to, you know, mobilizing when there are security incidents. Certainly the, um, the January 6th attack sort of brought focus into the unique status of the D.C. National Guard. And so they have this dual-hatted, what the Supreme Court actually calls their three hats, uh, their National Guard hat, working for essentially the militia of the state, their Army Reserve hat, which is their Title 10 capacity, and then their citizen hat, because at the end of the day, none of them are supposed to be full-time soldiers. These are essentially citizens who, who live with the musket in their closet, uh, ready to be called upon when the uh, nation needs them. That's super helpful. So just to follow up, so, so when, when Abbott says he is the commander-in-chief of the Texas National Guard, what does that mean? So, I mean, should, you know, because we, we could take it literally and say, well... The president is the commander in chief of the armed forces, and that means something. And then we have all these debates about what preclusive powers that gives the president and what control Congress nevertheless has. And maybe it's that Congress can regulate the, the military, but, the, but it, the president fundamentally has to be the person to give the orders. You know, should we understand the relationship of the state governors to their national guards to be analogous? Or is it really that? For all intents and purposes, the state national guards are controlled as much as the federal government wants it, and any like residual power that the the governor gets until the federal government says, "Now nah, we like this power back." You know, you're not a real commander in chief. <laughs> um, I don't know that the federal government would be ever fully comfortable saying that, but you're you're not entirely far off. So the commander in chief, to the extent the governor is the commander in chief of the national guard, they do serve a role very similar to the president respecting the United States armed forces under Title Ten. There is at least a argument, and it's captured in certain parts of Title 32, that the president is also sort of in the position of being the commander in chief of the state National Guards as well, essentially via, he's sort of the supreme commander in chief, the commander in chief chief, uh, if you will, of the state National Guards. But that's sort of an unresolved and obviously contentious question that no one has ever really desired to have resolved. But there, the powers left to the states are actually very important powers. They were certainly seen as important at the time of the founding, but they're not particularly significant when it comes to what we would think of as the day-to-day -day standard setting and regulation of the armed forces. So the two powers that uh, the states unambiguously retain against the federal government is that only the state can appoint the officers of the National Guard. States reserve the power uh, to appoint their officers. So a state's adjutant general, uh, which is essentially the, the chairman of the state's joint chiefs of staff, the top military officer for the state, is and must be under the Constitution appointed by the state. The federal government can have no role whatsoever in appointing particular officers to a state's National Guard. There's a kind of an open controversy about whether or not the federal government can remove outright members of the National Guard. Certainly federal law currently gives the federal government that power. Uh, but there are these kind of lingering constitutional arguments that sort of separation of powers hawks and people who are really into the appointments clause would like uh, about whether or not the states uh, retain ultimately the power to remove members of their National Guard as well by virtue of the power to appoint. And also uh, the states retain the sole power to conduct training of their National Guard forces, uh, except under the regular, they must do so in conformity with and under the regulations specified by Congress. Now, that sounds pretty trivial, but that was actually the major one of the major concerns for the founders is they were worried about the federal government essentially ordering members of the National Guard, essentially ordering the militia to muster on a daily basis and sort of impose this kind of federal tyranny. But when it comes to pretty much every other aspect of how the National Guard is disciplined, organized and armed, uh, is the language strictly from the militia clauses in Article One, uh, that's left to the left of the Congress. And so. We can have these debates about 
you know, to what extent are the governors of various states, the commander in chief, and do they have residual powers? Those are all well and good. But since at least 1820, the Supreme Court has held that so long as Congress is operating uh, within its parameters of organizing, arming, and uh, disciplining the militia, which essentially means to regulate the militia, then Congress gets the final say. It's sort of the ultimate supremacy clause question. And so long as Congress is not interfering with the appointment of officers or the training of the militia, Congress gets to more or less do what it wants. So is it just me or have there been a lot of National Guard controversies lately? I was I was thinking while reading the articles we all sent out to prepare for this. That So obviously there's this question about vaccines. There's the governor of South Dakota's effort to send National Guard troops to the southern border, which caused a lot of confusion over whether or not she could do that. There's, of course, the various controversies over the use of the Guard under Trump during the George Floyd protests in the immediate aftermath. And Michelle, as you pointed out, there's also, of course, the the question of the National Guard mobilizations in D.C., specifically during January 6th. I mean, the the way you framed it, it sounds like the, the Guard, by the nature of what it's supposed to do and sort of where it sits in the Constitution and the intersection of federal and state power, is always going to be a flashpoint. And I don't mean to suggest that that's new, because, of course, you only have to go, you know, as as far back as Little Rock. But I don't know. I mean, do you think, Michelle, is, am I going too far out in a limb and saying that there have been an unusual amount of controversies here? And if not, I'm curious what you make of that. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting observation. I can't, I don't think I've ever thought as much about the National Guard as I have over the past two years. And yeah, I, you know, I think probably it's a function of the fact that our political polarization has become extremely geographically defined so that we now talk of red and blue states in sort of almost nationalistic terms. And so the idea that particular states want to pursue policy objectives that are either for or against the government, whether or not that is a Republican or Democrat national government, you know, the, these, these, the role of essentially the military power that the states have retained uh, since the founding ends up becoming this sort of strange flashpoint in our political controversies. It's sort of the most, it, it sort of augurs the most violent potential uh, in our politics. And it has actually since the founding. One of the sort of, you know, I mean, to people who sort of geek out like I do about the history of the militia, one of the interesting pieces from the ratification debates was the New York delegation actually, I think, passed a law or a regulation basically forbidding the deployment of its own militia in the federal service until its demands under for the uh, essentially changes to the Bill of what became the Bill of Rights until the Bill of Rights was ultimately passed. And so there is this idea that state power over its armed forces, that there is this kind of local control over our military power that we can then express politically, which which seems to have, as you, as you kind of note, uh, dragged the National Guard into a lot of national controversies over the role of federal power, over, you know, who is and who is not a national security threat. And, and so it is actually a really fascinating mirror, I think, on some of our domestic politics. I think one thing it's, that struck me as interesting and interesting timing is that this isn't actually even the only context where this question of federal authority over the military compared to various states' rights has come up recently. We, uh, we just saw last week Supreme Court grant cert in a case basically arguing that a federal statute, uh, I think it's Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, USERA, which basically provides a set bundle of remedies to service members, both for reemployment if they're called up for a National Guard or other service, and for basically you know relief for various types of medical conditions that might arise from federal service, gives certain remedies against employers, including states. And there's this question as to whether the federal government could actually have authorized a lawsuit against the state of Texas through the statute, at least the way it's worded. Part of it may hinge on a question of statutory interpretation, but behind that are constitutional issues about federal war power and how far it can go in abridging state rights. It's kind of an interesting new front and this kind of pushback on the growth of federalism that has been a theme of kind of Supreme Court jurisprudence really going back to at least the Rehnquist era, if not earlier. A lot of those other fronts have like never quite gone as far as people thought they would. You know, the pushback against the Commerce Clause went to Lopez and a few other places, but the Commerce Clause jurisprudence is still pretty strong and in place. You know, people thought Treaty Clause was going to get reined back by bond and never didn't really happen. The court kind of balked at that. I'd be a little surprised if the court actually takes this up. But it's an interesting question. You know, it's this, these unknown boundaries of federal versus executive power in a particular area. Again, I wouldn't want to fight that out on war powers if I were a state's right person. But nonetheless, that's the fight they seem to be picking in 
two different contexts at this moment. Yeah, I, I think there is something to that, Scott. And I think it does, definitely kind of gets to Quinta's point as well, or Quinta's observation about the, the growing prominence of National Guard controversies. Because the more our politics have become geographical and more partisan, I think we've seen a mapping of that partisan divide in national security policy as well. And so it's everything from the Muslim ban to the building of the southern border wall to whether or not the National Guard should be deployed to protect the you know, pro-Trump pro- protesters at the January 6th rally or uh, were stalled in responding to Congress's demands uh, for security support after the Capitol was breached. And I think that's a really dangerous, I think that's a really dangerous trend. I think it's an unfortunate trend to be sure, but I think it's, I also think we have to be careful about letting our national security politics, essentially our politics of violence, take on a partisan cast. Because I think that is, if you look to any historical example, once you start politicizing the armed factions of the society, then you really are on a very dangerous road in terms of your own politics and security. Before we close this topic out, I, I do want to come back to the specific question of vaccine mandates and ask you, Michelle, you know, what your predictions are for how any litigation might result. Now, you know, in your lawfare piece about the Oklahoma situation, you seemed very skeptical that this was going to go anywhere. And I'm curious if anything in the intervening time has changed your mind or if you can imagine a circumstance in which these resisting states might have a stronger argument? And then if not, why are they picking this fight? I mean, is this just more culture war? Because, you know, let's sue the government, because why not? So uh, taking your first or your second point up, I, I do fear that. I think this is kind of, again, bringing the National Guard into the culture war. And I think we've seen it not just with the National Guard. I think, you know, various police unions have seen these vaccine mandates as an opportunity to to pick fights in places like Chicago, even to New York to some extent. So I, I do sort of fear that this is just an example of, again, culture war po- politics entering uh, sort of the national securities base. Do I think these lawsuits are going to be successful? Honestly, no. I don't think there's much you know, room for any success. I think the uh, there have been a number of suits already brought by members of the armed forces essentially bringing religious and other challenges to the uh, vaccine mandates within the armed forces. I think about four or five of those have already been decided by district courts in the negative. So in denying the injunctions, there's another one that actually was just argued in Texas yesterday, and I think is probably going to head in the same direction. You know, the we, we give the federal government a lot of leeway in how to govern the armed forces to make sure that they're ready to fight at the moment's notice, um, and particularly with the National Guard, so that they can be brought into uh, service without any sort of hesitation, uh, that we don't need the federal, we, the federal government doesn't have to be stuck in the position of saying, well, we can't bring in the Oklahoma National Guard because they don't have a vaccine mandate and 10% of their armed forces are not vaccinated. And therefore, we can't deploy them to this particular area where the population is not vaccinated or there's a particular risk of COVID exposure. That's the, that's the whole point, frankly, of having given Congress the power to regulate the militia back at the time of the founding was to make sure that the military was uniform and interoperable. And so I think any of these cases that to the extent they ever go to court, I think they're doomed to failure for all the reasons uh, we've talked about. But I do worry that there is going, you know, we're in the era of performative litigation, where just bringing these lawsuits creates its own sort of epi controversies. Uh, Everything gets wrapped around, wrapped in the cloak of being part of the Constitution and what my rights are under the Constitution. But I do think there's something kind of nefarious about that when you start you know, talking about the nation's security services, whether or not it's the police, but also the National Guard, the armed forces. When when they start engaging in that kind of sort of partisan litigation, I think there is at least cause for a broader concern. Well, we will talk about partisan and performative litigation later in the episode. But for now, I'm going to attempt a segue from culture war to real war. How is that? Uh, we are next going to talk about the review conference of the UN's Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, which is more exciting than it sounds because it doesn't sound exciting at all. Uh, So this is also sometimes known as the Inhumane Weapons Convention, which gives you maybe a little bit of a better sense of what we're going to discuss. This group was meeting and one of the issues under consideration was whether there should be a ban on what are often called killer robots or 
if you like acronyms laws, so that's Lethal Autonomous Weapons Systems, the group wrapped up its conference without agreeing to a ban on anything and posted kind of a, a vague statement. The New York Times has a story about this saying that essentially part of the reason why no agreement was reached is because uh, certain signatories to the convention, including notably the United States and Russia, don't want to ban these autonomous weapon systems because they themselves are developing them and perhaps would like to use them. So this, I think, raises a lot of different questions. I think the the topic of autonomous weapons is one that tends to get people pretty worked up, I would say. So I guess my question, Scott, I know you have you have thoughts on this. What do you think of the arguments for banning these kinds of, of weapon system? And is there any prospect that it might actually happen? Or is this totally pie in the sky, given the objections of state parties like the US and Russia? You know, it's a really good question. And every time I encounter this conversation, the part that I find really frustrating is that it comes down to this question of a ban, which I am very skeptical of as an appropriate way to approach the very real problematic issues raised by autonomous weapons of various types, right? On the one hand, there is our total valid points about autonomous weapons raising concerns. To me, the best way, the clearest way they raise a marginal concern over, you know, human beings pulling triggers on weapons of the same sort is about scalability. And the fact that you can have one error put into a computer program replicated very large scale before human beings have an ability to react, or perhaps have an error in a computer program human beings don't recognize, aren't able to properly account for, that leads to inappropriate targeting. The counterbalance of that, though, to me, is that human error, you know, is really high in these sorts of situations as well. Um, just last week, we spent a long time talking about, and I should say, not just human error, human, you know, bad intent as well. Um, just last week, we spent a good part of our episode talking about this Talon Anvil story about how a U.S. special operations unit was targeting civilians, or at least making strikes that had uh, inappropriate levels of civilian consequences and casualties, in some cases doing so deliberately, actually targeting civilians according to this one media account. You know, that's really problematic behavior that you you don't actually have to, to worry about with robots the same way if you program them correctly. And a lot of the proposals in the advocacy circles around what to do with these weapons is to try and prevent them from fully automation, to say, okay, yeah, we can go all the way up to a certain point, but a human being has to pull the trigger. And I don't know if I have an objection to that per se, except that I'm just not sure what problem that's really solving. You know, a computer could come and an automated system could come up with a super detailed set of targeting recommendations that a human being will have to evaluate and then quickly pull the trigger on to have military efficiency to take the strike window, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There, human beings aren't going to be able to process or do much with that really complex set of data set up on the front end. That effectively, it strikes me, in that sort of window, at least not in a lot of cases. So I don't know how effective that safety check is, except for maybe just making it less efficient, uh, a slower rate of targeting. Where you do want human behavior is in auditing and programming and looking at efficiency and continually reevaluating the programming and conditions that go into that automated behavior. And putting a human being in that last strike moment as the person has to finally pull the trigger actually doesn't help address that. That's much more of a management structural question that is much more challenging, but frankly, much more important in terms of moderating the potential negative impacts of these systems. In my mind, these systems have a lot to be said for them for potentially limiting a lot of the problems that come in military conflict in terms of being able to set up parameters that, while there certainly will still be significant margins of error, can be improved upon. Hopefully, technology will continue to improve upon, improved upon with higher data sets, more repetitions, more experience. And that can be recorded and can be required to be recorded by any legal mechanism that you can clearly go back and audit and conduct an ex post investigation that says, here's what this formula was doing at this time and the data it was taking in to correct for that future cases, that clearly establishes a record about what exactly happened, or at least you can program it to establish a record, or at least not program it to delete it, which you know I think would be a proactive step you'd have to take at a certain point. Those are all things you don't have with the black box of a human being pulling the final trigger. So I think it's unfortunate that the, this debate and so many of these debates come down around the idea of a ban which I think a lot of states, major military powers like the United States and major technological powers like Japan have a big issue with because it seems very clearly intended to limit 
their exploration of a type of technology that gives them a competitive advantage. And there are good reasons states may not want them to have a competitive advantage, but you also understand why they'd be hesitant to give that away. It strikes me there might be much more agreement about setting up parameters about how to responsibly manage this, but I think the ban makes it a harder pill to swallow to even start the conversation for those states, which is why you see them talking about things like a code of conduct as opposed to a, a treaty articulating these principles that are going to lead to some restrictions. Yeah, I, I agree with basically everything Scott said. Just add two things. One, I think the conference should have called itself a Skynet conference. I think that's a big uh, big mistake. Could have gotten a lot more a lot more play in the press. So that seems like a, a bad branding, a misbranding opportunity. I'm sorry, Alan. We are on the verge of Matrix 4 and you're going to go back to Skynet? I don't think so. This should definitely have been like, you know, I don't even know what you call those things in the Matrix, but the Neo uh, conference, something like that. We got a lot more AI driven <laughs> robot systems we can tap into here. I mean, I do think that the Skynet comparison is interesting though, because part of the the terror that people have around autonomous weapons is often this idea that, you know, oh no, they'll they'll enable some kind of terrible totalitarian state killing everyone on site or something like that. I think as we've seen with all the problems that tech has had in the last few years, the problem is that we'll put together these these things and they won't work. <laughs> and when you have a robot that's developed to kill somebody and it doesn't work, that's not that's like crappy Skynet, which is just as concerning. Oh, I like that. No, yes, the crappy Skynet conference. Um, but whatever whatever it's called, uh, yeah, I agree with all the points Scott made. I just wanted to kind of add another one or emphasize another one, which is the difficulty of definition here. So this is this is a huge problem whenever you try to talk intelligently about artificial intelligence or algorithms or automation or machine learning or whatever alphabet soup of concepts we're using, which is that these terms don't really mean anything precise, right? And And, and so you end up ha- having to make these kind of casuistic distinctions between, you know, what is a fully automated system versus a partially automated system versus a system that's 99.9% automated, but there is this big red button that someone has to physically push. And how much does that add to anything? So I, I do think for this debate to be useful, it has to be done much, much more precisely, right? You have to identify very specific technologies and you have to say, for these technologies, such and such uses are okay, such and such uses are not okay, such and such uses need to be investigated. And I do think if you get to that level, there are interesting things to say here. So one could imagine, for example, that you know one concern with large autonomous weapon systems is that if you have you know two sides, each of which keep adding to their stock of autonomous systems, which are looking at each other and trying to act faster than the other person, you can get these very complicated effects that you don't understand. So you see this a lot, for example, with automated trading in in the stock market, where you have you know the vast majority of transactions are done by computers, and the computers are all reacting to each other in ways that are very difficult for humans to understand. Right? Okay, fine. So maybe if we got sometime down the road to that level of automation. We might want to draw some limits there and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the idea of trying to ban autonomous weapons is, it's not exactly like trying to ban weapons, but it is getting to that point of generality that is very unhelpful. Can I actually like pick up on that? Because I think that's a really astute observation in this very, I think, often overlooked like respect is that we, we have lots of AI, autonomous weapons, machine learning, whatever you want to call it now, a lot of targeting systems essentially depend upon statistical inference to make the targeting more accurate. The assassination of the nuclear, the Iranian nuclear scientist with the robot machine gun, that would have been impossible uh, because of everything from like data latency to just human reflexes and time with uh, human reflexes, reaction time without AI to essentially enable the sniper to shoot when the particular target was in sight. And so I think the, the real you know, the, the thing that everyone is afraid of is the Skynet, right? Is, is the Terminator walking around choosing targets for reasons we don't understand? Whereas I think a lot of what artificial intelligence has been designed to do is to give particular operators the ability to target without the same kind of precision with the AI making whatever the targeting that has already been done more precise. And so if we can think about how to use that in, that sort of technology to actually enhance the humanitarian sort of interests that come with any kind of targeting. I think there is actually is a lot, there's a very good humanitarian argument for increasing use of technology in targeting. So for example, if I drop a giant bomb on a car, or I can drop an AI assisted bomb, which is much smaller and brings a smaller payload, but can make a much more distinguished 
targeting decision when closer to the target. I think there's actually a humanitarian benefit from that that doesn't get us into the realm of the Terminator sort of buying the shotgun and loading it uh, in order to go hunt down the mother of his arch nemesis. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And I will say, I think in these sorts of contexts where a big question you have is how do you handle after the fact accountability, actually like machine driven, even learning actually has a lot of advantages here. Because even if you are of a system, which probably, you know, in some sense, aspects will be within a current technological capacity. Some of this is anticipating things down the road. But if you have this idea of a system learning and evolving how it picks its own targets past very clear parameters handed to it directly by human programmers, that raises a lot of questions. Absolutely. But you do the same thing when you train a human being who had to pull these targets. And the difference that you can do with a machine is that you can then crack the code open and figure it out how it got to where it got and do a more comprehensive, effective after the fact analysis to say, oh, this is what this did wrong. And we can hopefully correct that moving forward, not just in this entity, but in all other entities. You can't do that with soldiers, with human beings making those sorts of decisions. That's actually a big edge in my mind about encouraging not just after the fact accountability, because there's no way a military can say, well, we didn't give an order. This person was misinterpreting our orders or acting outside of the scope of our orders when it's a machine that just does what it's programmed to do. Although you can say maybe our orders weren't precise enough. You also can go in and say, we are can actually fix this for future cases moving forward and incorporate that data more effectively, frankly, than I suspect most conventional military training can. But I, can, I, can I just push back on that a little bit? Because isn't that what war crimes liability or liability generally is there for? Uh, that is our post hoc investigation into soldiers who've made stupid, bad, evil decisions on the battlefield. And we use we have essentially a whole moral framework, not just a legal framework, but a moral framework for making decisions for judging decisions in combat about target selection. And I think the thing that gets everyone paranoid, and I think justifiably paranoid about autonomous weapons, is that the moral and legal frameworks we have for judging those decisions completely breaks down, especially if we're thinking about these kind of black box AI systems, which are based on machine learning. Yeah, you can't see listeners, but I'm, I'm nodding vigorously. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Part of what makes people uncomfortable about the idea of autonomous weapons, I would argue, is that they can't feel guilt. And that sounds stupid if I put it like that, but I do think that part of what matters to people when we think about accountability for mistakes is whether somebody can take that to heart and really feel the weight of what went wrong in the lives that were lost. And obviously, if you have, you know, you set aside the Terminator, but if you have a machine, you can go in and look at the code, but you can't see guilt in the code. And I do think that, you know, that can sound very sort of woo-woo, but I do think it matters. And I think that that moral instinct is worth listening to, not necessarily meaning that that should lead us to a ban, but I do think that it's it's something that's worth taking into consideration and, and taking seriously when we're thinking about if and how we want to regulate these kind of tools. All I'll say is that I, I buy those arguments and I, I think it's important that you incorporate those sort of calculuses, but I, I think I just have a lot less faith of the idea that human beings are actually 
you know, employing them in their actual decision making. So yeah, that's reliably. the flaw in my argument. Yeah, it's kind of like the log- argument is almost exactly like the argument, not coincidentally, over like autonomous cars, right? Like there's this big fear and distrust of autonomous cars because people say, well, I don't like losing control. And at least when other people are behind the wheels, I understand where they're coming from, even though you know, most studies have done this, have said Thomas cars substantially reduce. They do not by any means eliminate, but substantially reduce a lot of traffic accidents. And it's the same logic here, because you may say, oh, yeah, but people are like, they're worried about speeding laws. They're worried about the moral cost of, you know, uh, driving too fast in one lane or driving drunk. But people do these things all the time. And I'm not convinced that particularly when you're talking about like warfare at a distance, which is how warfare is increasingly conducted now, where that human element and i'm not sure how this was ever true but you know there's a prevailing idea for a long time and in, in law of war and other ideas is that there's a human empathy and element of being in direct combat going all the way back to like really like 17th century conceptions of like the gentleman oh man I, ha- I have so much to say about that i know i know and you've written about it quinta i think i think uh insightfully you know there's a good argument that a lot of that begins to bleed away or at least goes away a lot faster when you don't have that sort of engagement at least i find it a credible possibility and so I'm just not sure the human element had so much there in the front end. At the back end, you absolutely need people to look back at this and say, outside of the heat of the moment, God, this was a bad decision. We need to fix this moving forward. But again, I'd rather have more effective tools to do that than hinge my upfront decision making on an imperfect human actor. Well, as much as I would like to respond at length, I think we should probably move to our next topic. Well, speaking of imperfect human actors, <laughs> let's turn... <laughs> To uh, Alex Jones and Mark Meadows and some of our favorite friends here at Rational Security. Uh, As we saw, an interesting set of lawsuits kick off kind of a new phase in uh, this current era of investigation around the events of January 6th in one case and the broader Trump organization's activities for the last several years in the other. And this is that former President Trump and at least two of his associates, I put Alex Jones in kind of that broad camp, because I don't know exactly what degree of direct interaction they've had, um, have filed lawsuits. President Trump, former President Trump, filed a lawsuit against the New York State Attorney General, uh, suggesting that their ongoing investigation heading into year two or three at this point of the Trump organization's activities is motivated by political animus and infringes upon his 14th Amendment and First Amendment rights, as well as some state law abusive process claims. And he's trying to compel, get a federal court to compel the New York State Attorney General's office to end it or curtail the investigation substantially. And then Alex Jones and Mark Meadows, two people who have been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, have now countersued, claiming that in the first hand that January 6th committee is improperly constituted and not acting pursuant to a legislative purpose arguments we've seen trotted out in the NARA litigation we've discussed here before in another context. That's that's a little dubious, at least under the most recent D.C. Circuit opinion. We'll see if it holds. Then we also see claims we made that also violates their First Amendment rights. In the case of Alex Jones, that's rights as a journalist. In the case of Meadows, that's rights to speech. Fourth and Fifth Amendment claims, the Stored Communications Act, uh, and then a separate kind of testimonial immunity and outgrowth of executive privilege arguments that Mark Meadows is claiming as former chief of staff. A real kind of bundle of arguments here. Alan, I want to turn to you first on this. You know, in this grab bag of arguments we have, uh, which goes through a lot of layers of federal and in the Trump case, state law claims as well, statutory and constitutional, what threads of this have an element of credibility and if they don't have an element of credibility, this is all going to go away with a motion to dismiss. What's the motivation for taking this step now? So for the Trump lawsuit, I think that the only piece of credibility here is that as a matter of professional and political ethics, Letitia James has not been acting particularly well as attorney general of New York. Now, let me be very clear. That does not mean that Trump's claims of selective prosecution and 14th Amendment violations and First Amendment violations, and I don't know, there's probably a footnote about Jewish space lasers there somewhere, um, that any of these claims have merit. And I cannot imagine that he will be successful in his suit. So as a legal matter, this is all totally nonsense. But I do think, right, and this is an important point, especially for Democrats, right, the party of rule of law and democracy norms, to understand is that the conduct of New York Attorney General James has not been great here, right? And I don't know what it is about New York Attorney Generals, you know, the last several high profile ones, you know, Elliot Spitzer, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, you know, it, it like, it's not a great position. For Eric some Schneiderman. Eric Schneiderman is not great. Like it's, it's it like, it seems to attract like a real kind of grandstander. 
you know, I personally have had my real doubts about James's behavior ever since she sued to dissolve the NRA. And as someone who is about as against gun rights as one can imagine, you know, my views on that are that it was a large kind of political stunt on on her part. And there's a law for peace where I complain about it. Now, I don't think that her investigation into Trump's business dealings are in any way a stunt in the sense that they're super meritorious. I mean, there's clearly a huge amount of shady, if not downright criminal behavior there, and that should be investigated 100%. It's also the case that she has been talking about Trump, talking about the investigation in the most kind of partisan political ways imaginable, fundraising off of it on every you know, possible opportunity. You know, she she was running until fairly recently in the Democratic primary for uh, the New York State governor and was coming in pretty consistently, pretty far behind current governor, uh, Kathy Hochul. And then coincidentally, uh, recently decided, announced that she was dropping out of that primary because it was really important to finish the investigation uh, that she was conducting into Donald Trump. Why it wasn't really important to conduct that investigation three weeks ago, right, is is un- is unstated, right? So it, it's pretty clear to me that her use of this investigation for her own political profile and goals is absolutely something that should be criticized, right, is not appropriate, does not create confidence in this process, which is a huge issue, right, does not reflect well on rule of law norms. That being said, that is in no way a legal bar to investigation of Donald Trump. There is such a thing as selective prosecution. It is, in theory, something that a defendant can prove, but it is exceptionally hard to do so. It almost never happens. And you need way, way, way more evidence than Letitia James has been mean to me in public over the last several years, which is essentially what Trump's lawsuit boils down to. So to wrap up on the legal merits, there's nothing here. But I think absolutely James has not been conducting this appropriately. And uh, I think that should be something that she's fairly criticized for. Quinta, I want to come to you on the Meadows and Jones lawsuits. Before I do, though, Michelle, you're a resident New Yorker currently. I think Alan's a former New Yorker, but let me uh, turn it over to you first, or you can choose to abstain depending on your relationship with the New York State Attorney General's Office, however you however you feel about it today. Well, thankfully, I've avoided any relationship with the New York State Attorney General's Office so far, anyway, in my career. The only thing that struck me kind of as, as curious and even ironic about the Trump lawsuit against Tish James was when you read the complaint, the vast, vast, vast majority of sort of derogatory statements that he uses as a, a as a predicate to say that these investigations are in bad faith occurred while Tish James was on the campaign trail for Attorney General of, of New York. She actually did get a fair bit of pushback soon after taking office. And I think that probably chastened her a little bit in terms of her public statements directed at President Trump specifically. And, and so while there are statements about her taking on the Trump administration while Attorney General, sort of the ad hominems, uh, more or less precede her taking the oath of office to become the New York Attorney General. And I had this weird sort of deja vu to the whole debate over the Muslim ban and Trump versus Hawaii, where the you know, the entire predicate of, or one of the many predicates for why the Muslim ban was unconstitutional was President Trump's statements on the campaign trail that he and the Solicitor General vociferously argued were in essence cleansed by his his solemn oath of office. And the Supreme Court kind of bought that argument. And so there is this kind of funny reversal here where the very arguments that President Trump succeeded in getting the Supreme Court to buy upon, the language I was able to pull from the opinion is, Plaintiffs therefore ask this court to probe the sincerity of stated justifications for the policy uh, by reference to extrinsic statements, many of which were made before the president took the oath of office. And so in this lawsuit, it'll be interesting to see, but I would, be, I would not be surprised uh, to see that quote thrown right back at former President Trump in his, in his case against Tish James. Although in this case, she would be an incumbent, right? So it's slightly different posture there, which raises like a little bit of a different question. Under one oath, I guess not the governor's oath, obviously. Right, right. She, had, she hadn't been, uh, she was a New York public advocate, which is actually a pretty political position uh, in New York City. So the idea that she'd be making lots of partisan statements as the public advocate is nothing unusual. Uh, the attorney general, though, for all the reasons Alan said, I think should be have a little more discretion, even though that's certainly not the trend in New York. And, and just to be clear, right, 
there's there's plenty of hypocrisy to go around, right? There's no question that it's ridiculous that Trump is complaining about campaign statements given his campaign statements. But at the same time, Democrats should not discount the importance of campaign statements, right? Um, Trump versus Hawaii, the the Muslim travel ban case in which the court upheld the travel ban because it essentially discounted Trump's campaign statements was a terrible decision, precisely because the court should not have ignored the campaign statements. And there's a great law review article by Kate Shaw, who's a law professor, about in what circumstances campaign statements should be should be relevant. And, and so I just want to make clear, right, there's no question that Trump is being a hypocrite, but Democrats should not season that to say, oh, well, campaign statements don't matter. They definitely should matter. It's deja vu all over again. I mean, look, for, for all of the reasons that you all have just set out. I think that Trump's lawsuit against James is kind of a different animal than the other lawsuits that we're discussing here, right? Because precisely because it raises all of of these issues, whereas the suits that have been filed, for example, by Mark Meadows against the committee, um, by Alex Jones against the committee. Are they're suing a congressional committee, which is an explicitly political entity. So they they can, and I think do, include plenty of things in there about how, you know, this committee is just out to get Trump and it's on a witch hunt. I, I think Jones uses that language explicitly. But, you know, it's a congressional committee <laughs> that doesn't raise the same kind of problems that it does when it's a prosecutor because there's no expectation that it's going to be neutral. That doesn't mean that, you know, that should undercut their investigation or that they should use their investigatory tools to actually just go out and get someone, right? We don't, we don't want the House Un-American Activities Committee part two. But I also think that there is zero indication that that's what they're doing. I mean, the, the Jones lawsuit has this hilarious little description of um, the January 6th riot in, in one paragraph where he sort of says, yeah, some people broke in, you know, weird, weird few hours, but no worries. Uh, and kind of brushes it off. And I think it is notable that in addressing, for example, uh, Trump's lawsuit against the committee over trying to enjoin the National Archives from handing over material to the committee, all the judges who have ruled on that have been really, really forceful in saying this was a direct attack on our democracy. It deserves to be taken seriously. And the committee is, you know, engaging in a fully legitimate investigation under the constitution in in looking into this. I will say I am very skeptical of most of the arguments particularly in the Jones and the Meadows lawsuits which are very similar. Oh, the Jones one is ridiculous. You know, you know, it's interesting that it's very similar to the Meadows lawsuits and I suspect we're going to see more that look very similar. They're basically presenting the same architecture of arguments. They trade out that Jones is a, you know, media figure for a different first amendment right. Note that in his defamation suits of course he argued he's an entertainment figure uh, specifically to get out of some of the obligations there. So I think he's going to face a little trouble arguing two directions on that particular front. There is one slice of it that I think is like may pose a little bit of a head scratcher for DOJ, which is Mark Meadows making this kind of testimonial immunity as independent from it's actually closely related to executive privilege, arguably like kind of a part of executive privilege. But it's a separate idea about the source of information you're protecting than what's at issue in the NAR litigation quite as squarely. I think it's closely related. I could easily see a court saying it should be resolved the same way, but there are some different arguments there. There's a lot of OLC precedent, not really any court precedent that I can aware of or can think of off the top of my head, except for but a lot of like OLC discussions about this dating back a long time and then coming all the way up through McGahn during the Trump administration. So that's one of these cases where you may see that actually causing a little bit of a headache for people in terms of DOJ wrestling with how they weigh in on this if they weigh in on this and they probably will feel some you know sense to do so obligation to do so but other than that it seems like a lot of this is intended primarily to use the courts as a messaging system as we've seen these parties do time and time again as a means both of getting a message out there building a public narrative using these filings to give some legitimacy to their narrative of the facts and then simply stalling and trying to run down the clock until the january 6th committee potentially ends after the next congressional election. And making some money too. I mean, I got to assume that this is great for fundraising, right? I mean, Trump can too. Trump can yeah. sue, you know, James and 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 Jones can sue the committee and then, you know, if if you care about these patriots, give $5 today and then you're on these email lists until you die. 
I think I think that is true. I mean, I I also think it's important to contextualize the Meadows suit. So Meadows has been held in contempt of Congress at this point, and I think we are waiting on the Justice Department to decide whether or not it wants to bring criminal charges. So I think Meadows has a very good lawyer in George Terwilliger. So I think one way to read the serious parts of his lawsuit, namely the the components that touch on absolute immunity and executive privilege is tr- sort of trying to head off a potential contempt prosecution. So we'll see where that goes. Speaking of lawyers, actually, did anyone notice that Clita Mitchell, I, I think I'm pronouncing Clita Mitchell, yeah. is uh, Jones's lawyer. And she was one of Donald Trump's, she was part of the call to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, basically asking for votes. I did not notice that. The gang's all here. Yeah, it kind of struck me as sort of one of the the weirder legal ethics bedfellows questions embedded in this case. Uh, I actually, I'm not even sure she can actually be the lawyer in this particular case. It would strike me that she might be a witness or at least a party. And you know, if you're if you're thinking about it in terms of a conspiracy, it's, it struck me as sort of, and it, it struck me at a minimum as a very strange counsel choice. You know, it would not be the first for this particular crew, though, to say the very least. I'm always intrigued by looking at the lawyers' names on these briefs because they're always uh, an eclectic bunch. Sometimes very talented lawyers, sometimes uh, lawyers, you really scratch your head where they came from. But I think all this litigation is interesting, and I will note uh, most of it, I believe, or at least that related to the committees, I should say, not the New York litigation, will most likely be featured on our January the 6th committee resource page at some point as part of the ongoing civil litigation around the committee's work. With that in mind, we have come to the end of our time for this episode, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you without some object lessons. Alan, let me turn it over to you first to get us started. So my object lessons, and I'm here, I guess I'm hearkening back to the original rational security crew. My object lessons are two bottles of delicious brown liquor, a bourbon and a rye. And what makes these special is that they were distilled two blocks from where I live. Because in St. Paul, Minnesota, the wonderful city in which I reside, uh, there are not only amazing breweries and you know all of that that we've come to expect from, from most major cities and minor cities and cities in between, uh, but we have a distillery called Studio Distilling. It's amazing. My wife and I went on a tour of it uh, last week and got to try some of their fantastic product and bought some. So that's my object lesson. But the bigger object lesson, I think, is that I think everyone you know, this holiday season or in the new year, make a trip to your local distillery because, you know, we've had this amazing renaissance of small craft distilleries in the last 10, 15 years. You know, we we had the kind of craft beer age, which is still going strong, but now increasingly we have craft distilleries and they're amazing. And if you, like I suspect many of our listeners live in a, you know, city of really any size. There's probably a great distillery nearby that's making amazing stuff. And I I think it's really cool that I get to drink, you know, Minnesota rye and Minnesota bourbon, things that my state is not known for, but man, it is tasty. Second that, I will just say for our very DC heavy listening audience, if you have not gone to Ivy City and Union Market and other places around the city to sample our amazing set of distilleries and breweries and other uh, manufacturers of various types of potables, you are missing out. Big shout out to Republic Restoratives, Don Ciccio, Cotton and Reed, Green Hat, all some of my favorites from there, some of whom I will come up, bring up and are going to come up in some of my object lessons in coming weeks. So be sure to partake responsibly uh, this season. Alan, you unleashed him. Green, Green Hat is really good. I miss that from DC. It is really good. I spent a lot of time in stores this week, uh, masked, double masked, in fact, uh, looking for Christmas presents, which meant that I spent longer than I usually do looking at weird novelty merchandise. And in doing so, I discovered possibly the worst item of baby gear that I have ever seen in my entire life. It is a onesie that says on the front in big, white letters, Russians hacked my diaper. I want it immediately. I want this It is 2021, right now. people. I need it is almost 2022. of my child. No, under no circumstances. That. Nobody should buy this. Nobody should have made it. it. We should ritually fantastic. burn it. I absolutely refuse. It is so bad, but I'm now sharing it with you because of how bad it is. But what if you had a little girl baby and you had a diaper that said, but her diapers? <laughs> No, that's no unacceptable. Unacceptable. That's actually, uh, that was five years worse. ago. 
Oh, it's amazing. I feel like with the whole line of just throwback. You know, somewhere somebody manufactured 10 million of these in 2016 and then only <laughs> sold 20% of them. And the rest of them got donated to like needy countries around the world where babies wearing these but her diapers, onesies and diapers all over the world. I promise you. It's amazing. It's like when you see the people wearing the T-shirts for the team that lost the Super Bowl Absolutely because they had hideous. to sell them the day of. So they made the other team just in case they wanted the rest of it to get thrown away and shipped off. Just look, man, I've made my share of Russian hacking jokes. We've all done it. We've all been there. This is too far. Well, I will go to something, another old classic routine uh, for my object lesson. As listeners know, I am on a holiday-themed object lesson run. And my latest holiday project, my activity, has been to try and nail an eggnog recipe. Because I like eggnog exactly one glass at a time. I can't make a big old batch of eggnog because it's absurd and kind of gross. It involves like 25 eggs that nobody's ever going to go through. And particularly in pandemic phase where we're not having holiday parties, it's more than I'm willing to take on. So I think I have finally mastered or gotten damn close to a shaken eggnog recipe for single or double servings eggnogs. Uh, I won't go through the whole thing here because it is surprisingly involved. You'll be pleased to know. But I will say, I think the real secret is the alcohol combo and the secret ingredients. The alcohol combo, for those who are keeping track, it's not just brandy. It's not just rum. It's not just bourbon. You want to do three-quarter ounce brandy, three-quarter ounce all-spice dram, Go for one of the rum-based ones, Cotton Reed, local D.C. distillery, 100% worth tapping into their dram, which is amazing. A half ounce of cream sherry and a half ounce of your choice of nut liqueur. Amaretto's lovely here. Kahlua actually works. I've been doing a wonderful walnut nachino from Don Ciccio, our local Amaro distillery here in D.C. I think it's amazing. And then with that combo, you can do a recipe of your choice, but I have one. And the real secret is when you shake it, you shake it over not just ice, but vanilla ice cream. Because that's how you're getting that creaminess and get some of that egg in there in addition to the egg. Or you can do a vegan version that's pretty good. So I will put my recipe, which I've been working on, in the show notes for your pleasure. I won't go through any more details here, but there are a couple other surprises in there. I'm really excited about it. I've been drinking them pretty aggressively. Now, have I had food poisoning for the last <laughs> few days? Yes, I have. Unrelated to the number of eggs I've, I've, I've consumed, raw eggs I've consumed recently for perfecting this recipe. Total, total coincidence, I swear. But it's totally worth trying, and I hope Scott, you, you are the fanciest boy i've ever met officially you Absolutely. are the, the lawfare fancy boy hands down and proud of it that would be a great onesie by the way lawfare La- fancy. lawfare's fanciest boy yeah. <laughs> only if it comes in a men's size extra extra large <laughs> then i am there so my object lesson uh also also somewhat appropriate to the holidays is a painting uh salvador mundi uh which you almost certainly would have seen when it was surfaced as the lost leonardo it was purchased on an auction site i think for about a thousand bucks uh and ultimately was sold to uh not officially confirmed but uh mbs for about half a billion dollars uh, at christie's two years ago and why this painting is worth uh thinking about again is there are not one but two documentaries uh, that have come out in the past year, like all great sort of suspect desires, whether it's the Fire Festival or the uh, paintings by Leonardo. Uh, you need to have two competing dueling documentaries with different points of view uh, about it. And one is called The Lost Leonardo. The other is The uh, Savior for Sale. Both are really excellent. Both have many of the same talking heads. And so it's really interesting sort of a you know, Rashomon experience almost and seeing these two different versions of the identical story. But for Lawfare listeners, I think one of the most fascinating undercurrents, which, which the documentaries explore a little bit, but could definitely have gone more into, is the role of art in money laundering and how uh, art is, uh, and particularly these sort of high value blue chip pieces, end up getting purchased by all sorts of oligarchs and others with money to move and stored in these vaults uh, called Freeports, uh, where they evade tax and become this kind of NFT for the ultra wealthy. And so it's a really fascinating look at this very strange part of the art market. And they're utterly delightful and definitely worth uh, enjoying as the Omicron variant is keeping all of us home. Well, and that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will also find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. 
You could also purchase Rational Security Swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this podcast that is officially up and working with instructions properly posted, we promise. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Good Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, and our special guest, Michelle Paradis, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 